Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day with a free email newsletter, a handy smartphone app, and at the website SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you this week from Beijing, where I am delighted to see so many people. Let's uh, hear some noise. Let's make some Beijing noise. Let's hear some, like, Beijing noise. <laughs> All right, coughs, coughs. Are gonna just... no, it's, it's a terribly smoggy day the, today. The phone calls as well, please. Right, phone calls as well, right. Everyone, please turn on your phone. And so we... Uh... Uh, with me, of course, is Jeremy Goldhorn, who is editor-in-chief of SubChina, uh, who has uh, not held unauthorized talks with any Russian diplomats and is therefore under consideration as a replacement <laughs> for uh, Flynn, for Michael Flynn. Uh, the Trump administration is considering him. I mean, Henry Kissinger was national security advisor, and he was a Jew also and a foreigner. <laughs> so why not you? <laughs> There's hope. All right, uh, so greet the people, Jeremy. Hello, Beijing. Um, <laughs> so... Thank you so much um, for spending your Valentine's evening with us. It's very romantic, and we feel very special. <laughs> so this guy, he's got. I mean, he, he, you brought your a date to. This is amazing. <laughs> Classy guy. I mean, no, I mean, keeper, absolute keeper, right? Absolutely, no, no question. Uh, so I want to thank the great folks for uh, making their space available to us. Uh, for these. I mean, it feels very formal. You guys should have like you know ceramic teacups in front of you, and I should greet you all with you know. Uh, so this fall, the 19th Party Congress commences here in Beijing, and all indications are that it's going to be one for the history books. As Xi Jinping finishes his first five-year term, observers of elite politics in China will be watching carefully for what transpires in the run-up to this party congress. There is talk of Xi Jinping declining to name a successor, as general secretaries have done at the end of their first five years ever since Jiang Zemin's ascent. Some have suggested that he's going to break with tradition on other matters as well. Uh, Xi Jinping has been overheard telling Wang Qishan that 70 is the new 50, apparently. I keep hearing that, too. And uh, if, if some dubious sources are to be believed, he's also mumbled that 20-year term is the new 10-year term. Um, anyway. These five, first five years in power have been marked by a consolidation of power, with Xi himself now elevated it to the status of party core at the recent sixth plenum of the Chinese Communist Party. It's been marked by a sustained and far-reaching anti-corruption drive that has certainly helped in that power consolidation by an illiberal turn in domestic politics with renewed emphasis on ideological rigor and party discipline, as well as a much more assertive foreign policy, a stalled economic reform agenda despite ambitious goals laid out by the third plenary session. Recently, we've also seen Xi Jinping take up the banner of economic globalization, a banner that Donald Trump uh, has contemptuously cast aside, with Xi's speech at the World Economic Forum in January winning thunderous applause from the dark-suited men at Davos. And we know because Kaiser was there among oh, was the dark-suited yeah, men. In a dark suit. No less, I didn't right. think he wore a tie, but... No, you know, actually, you're not supposed to wear ties at Davos. Ah, okay, out, right? sorry. It, it, it's, it's, our, they don't teach it's us, to put us uh, more in touch with, you know, the common people. <laughs> <laughs> the optics are terrible at Davos. I know, I understand that. Anyway, so with us to talk about Xi's first term and what we should all be looking at as the 19th Party Congress approaches is, of course, Chris Buckley, reporter with the New York Times. Chris is a highly regarded and very resourceful reporter who has broken numerous stories despite the stubborn opacity of the Chinese political system. So we are absolutely delighted that he could make his uh, debut on Seneca before this excellent audience. So, Chris, welcome to Seneca. Thank 
Delighted to be here, especially on Valentine's Day. All I can say is that everybody here has some explaining to do when they get home. <laughs> but, uh, thanks very much for turning up. We are, we are continuing our series of Australian New York Times reporters based in Beijing because we, <laughs> we had Jane Perlez uh, on, on Saturday night at the Bookworm, right? Almost a faction. Yeah, almost a faction. Right. <laughs> three, so, and three and it's a faction, right? Chris, let's start with a, a trade craft question, if I can borrow some of the language of espionage. Uh, Kaiser described you as a resourceful reporter and you you're certainly known for getting the sources that matter and also for having a, an astute understanding of the Chinese political environment. So without, of course, giving away any secrets, perhaps you could tell us something about how you cultivated the connections you have and, you know, at least how you cultivated this reputation, if it's not true at all. And give away secrets if you want to. That's fine. <laughs> yes, I'm sure others are listening as well. So let's spill it all out. I, I actually feel humbled and daunted on trying to report on this place and you know if, if if there's a perception that i have reliable consistent and reliable sources then that's a misnomer i, I find that uh, reporting on chinese politics is hard and it's become harder under xi jinping uh, the system has always been opaque it's become more opaque uh, the people who are willing to talk to foreign journalists has shrunk and what those people know about what's going on inside has also diminished as well. So I think even people inside the system know less and can say less. So I've always found that reporting on politics here is rather like trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle or mosaic. It's not as if, at least in my case, there's a deep throat who can share all the secrets of what's going on. It's a matter of hearing something or observing something and trying to make sense of that by talking to other people and looking what's on the public record. Uh, but that's difficult and, and uh, I guess insofar as I have sources, I like to think of them as, as friends as well. People you get to know in Beijing who you can have a, an honest and lively conversation with about politics here and what they're observing and, and how they read the signals. How, how high up are we talking about here? I mean, are we talking the Central Committee? Are we talking Politburo? No. no, for God's sake, no. no ministerial level sources? Or, no. I would wish. It, it, it's difficult. I think, uh, I think people in the business community now probably have uh, better access, at least, than I experience as a journalist. And I think even they find it's increasingly difficult. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's important that people understand in trying to make sense of China and, and Chinese politics in particular, it's, it's, in, it's important, as I say, to eat your bran. In other words, to, to do the drudgery of reading what's on the public record and trying to make sense of that. And that's you know, looking at the people's daily, looking at the speeches of the top leaders, uh, looking at the reaction that they, those speeches get from other officials. And, and that can be also be a useful guide to what's coursing through the political system, which is you know, otherwise uh, hidden from our, our gaze. Jeremy, you have a, a question there from a reader. Is that from, a, 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 from somebody in the audience. Christian, are you here? Christian Shepherd, is that right? Oh, hey, hey, Christian, how are you? Do you want, I'll go ahead. Okay, so I, he, Christian asked, and it's a related question. As a young China journalist, I'd like to hear Chris's thoughts on different tea leaves tactics. Cultivating sources aside, how else can you peek inside the halls of power? Is tracking personnel and factions everything? Does policy even matter? Uh, I think uh, tracking people and where they move is very important. And is this accomplished through like placement of electronic trackers? Or <laughs> Looking at promotions and demotions and dismissals uh, in particular. I think that's what we're talking about here. Uh, also, I think we have to have an open mind about how Chinese politics evolves. And sometimes I read academic analyses or textbooks or reports that talk about uh, this faction versus that faction. I think it's important to remember that in any political system, loyalties change over time. And sometimes we can look at Chinese politics through an outdated prism. So uh, without doubting that people have certain loyalties and personal ties, I do sometimes have a question about, for example, how relevant is it to talk about the Youth League faction these days, or even to talk about the so-called princelings as a, a unified caste that shares a sort of a, a, a 
has a shared view of the world, but also a, you know, a shared uh, political agenda as well. So, so that's a reference, of course, to Chung Li's kind of heuristic about how he understood, uh, at least during the Hu and Win period, uh, elite factions of elite politics. So do you think that that was ever really relevant? Do you think that was an, ever a very useful way to understand the leadership? Or do you think that, that uh, it was once and no longer is? I think sometimes people can overstate the uh, overwhelming importance of factions, even looking back at, say, the the 1980s and 1990s. I think, uh, for example, if you look at the Youth League, at least as I think of it, uh, the Youth League was a historical product of the 1980s in particular. After the Cultural Revolution, uh, Deng Xiaoping and the other leaders saw that they needed to nurture a new generation of leaders. And the Communist Youth League became an important ladder for identifying talent, nurturing it, and putting it in important positions. And so there was a particular reason then why the Youth League became this uh, center of gravity, if you like, for a a cohort of people who shared certain experiences and and values and and loyalties to their patrons as well. But I think, for example, in that case, its, its importance has diminished over time. And you can look at people who share certain personal ties still, but I think looking at it as a, as a block of people who move through the system and are sort of patting each other on the shoulder and handing out favours all the time, I just don't think it works like that now. I always found the princeling faction to be a more problematic idea. I mean, at least the, the, with the CYL group, you, you could sort of draw connections between individual people. Mm. But I, I always felt like princelings never seemed to act in any kind of a block and that that wasn't particularly useful. What, do you, what did you make of that? No, I think that's certainly true. Uh, my contact with princelings is very limited, oh, but from what I see and hear you, of them... You, do, you don't have a Lamborghini, so you can't go to the, the right clubs. Is I that smashed the mine, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, uh, you know, in, in, from what we can see of princelings as a group, they share certain experiences that have... You know, the, of being brought up in families which are heirs to Mao's revolution, and that that inculcates in them a sense of entitlement or perhaps responsibility about the direction of the country. But we also see that they can also have quite different prescriptions about what is necessary for you know, for the survival of the Communist Party and also for China's prosperity as well. So. Chris, she is the general secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. He's head of Central National Security Commission, chairman of the military, uh, Central Military Commission, commander-in-chief of the Army, chairman of the Central Commission for Integrated Military and Civilian Development, president of the People's Republic of China. <laughs> He's also the top leader at the Central Leading Groups for Comprehensively Deepening Reform, Internet Security and Informatization, National Defense and Military okay, Forum. Okay, got Economic affairs, but I think it's worth saying in at length. It's extraordinary. So many leading groups. You know, what, what? Why does he have so many leading groups that he's the leader of? Well, he decor. And, um, yeah, he decor. and uh, what? Uh, how? How are these leading groups used in uh, uh, the control of the government and the Communist Party? Well, leading groups have always been a feature of uh, Communist Party uh, bureaucracy. I think they've become particularly important under Xi Jinping because uh, after he came to power in 2012, I think there was a, a diagnosis of what had gone wrong under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao that believed that decision-making in those years had become too lethargic, had become uh, uh, splintered among rival bureaucracies and wasn't heeding Zhongnanhai. And so... Uh, the leading small groups became one tool used by Xi Jinping to re-centralize power and to at least attempt to create a decision-making mechanism that was going to be uh, more efficient, more authoritative, and carrying his unmistakable imprimatur as the leader of the Communist Party. So part of his signature, obviously, uh, and something that he's been carrying on since he, he uh, was named in, in uh, 2012 and, and, and took the, the throne, as it were, in 2013, mm. has been, of course, the anti-corruption drive, uh, which 
you know, has has is cast its net very, very wide with over 100,000 uh, officials, great and small, having already sort of gone down in it. Uh, what has it actually accomplished? I mean, and, and at what cost? I mean, has it actually frightened the party into kind of inaction, a fear of actually doing anything, lest it draw the un, unwanted attentions of, of uh, Wang Zishan and, and his uh, CDI? And uh, as some have suggested, has it created kind of a latent opposition that might be conspiring against Xi? Mm. I, this is a question I often ask myself as well about just, just how deep and how effective has the anti-corruption drive been? I, I think there's a view out there that the anti-corruption campaign has largely been for uh, factional or personal political ends and removing enemies or potential enemies of Xi Jinping in particular. And uh, apparently he has 120,000 of them? Apparently. Or? Right, okay. Apparently. Uh, I tend to think that it's actually more than that. And that what we saw after Xi Jinping came to power is that uh, he and other leaders had concluded, I think quite rightly, that corruption, certainly in the, the, the second part of the Huwen era, had reached the point where it was uh, brazen, uh, where it was eating to the inner core of, of party authority, and was becoming a real source of, of social discontent as well. And in particular, it was eroding the pillars of party power, uh, the military, uh, domestic security, party organization, and party propaganda. And the fear was that economic corruption it wasn't simply about is illicit enrichment by officials, it was also diminishing their loyalty and responsiveness to the party leadership. And so that's why we've seen uh, the description of corruption in, in uh, official media also linked to problems of, of the emergence of factions and cliques as well. Right. Uh, so I think that's why Xi Jinping and other leaders uh, took on corruption as one of the most serious issues that they had to deal with in their first years in, in power. Now, uh, at the same time, I think it's true that they were selective in how that was applied at the very top of the party. Uh, I think it's generally true that, for example, princelings haven't suffered intensely from this campaign. But in a sense, that's politics, isn't it? You, you, you're trying to the achieve... The costs of taking them down are simply too high, right? Probably too high. So there are greater ends involved here, but of course there's selectivity involved in how you achieve those greater ends. All that said, I think it's probably true, and we all perhaps to some extent experience the fact that uh, anti-corruption, the, the campaign for frugality and for clean living among officials has been a bit of a downer for a lot of them. And I think even officials who were not necessarily corrupt, but living off this, you know, these, these channels of grey income that were being generated by the government have found their incomes diminished and have found uh, you know, that their formerly comfortable lifestyles have become much more difficult. And that's difficult for officials who, are, who example, who were, had invested their money in several apartments, say, or sending their children abroad. Suddenly that, that income pool has shrunk and... You know, to hear friends who work out in the provinces or work in business, uh, when they deal with officials, it sounds like getting a decision, getting a document stamped has become much more difficult. All that said, I'm still not convinced that this resentment that has built up in the party bureaucracy about the campaign against corruption has, has coalesced into some sort of uh, forceful or concerted opposition against Xi. What about lethargy? What about the sort of sapping of industriousness and uh, of, of, of kind of initiative, that, which that, you also hear a lot? That does seem to be a problem. So I think one of the paradoxes of, of Xi's particular recipe for transforming China is that it's, it, it's centralized power. In some senses, it's treated the, the bureaucracy as, if not a foe, then certainly an obstacle to change. But at the same time, it has to use that obstacle, sorry, that, that bureaucracy as a tool for forwarding party policy. And how do you do that when you've told people that there are a bunch of lazy slackers who are right. <laughs> sapping the, the, the authority of the party? I can understand if you're official, you're probably going to have mixed, mixed feelings about, uh, about Xi's agenda. 
So, um, related to the corruption drive, or the anti-corruption drive, is, of course, the future of the man who Xi Jinping deputized to spearhead it, Wang Qishan. We've heard a lot of rumors about what's in store for Wang with the upcoming party congress, including the suggestions that he will not only remain on the Politburo Standing Committee, despite the informal age limit rule, but indeed may be elevated to the premiership. Do you have a hunch either way on this? And if you're not willing to go out on a limb for any particular reason, um, what signals would you look for as an indication that an elevation is likely or that there are going to be some changes to the way things are done? Uh, Jeremy, this is a question that's been on my mind, I have to say. All I could say at this point is that there seems to be so much talk out there from serious people about the possibility of Wang Qishan staying on that uh, I, I feel compelled to take that seriously, although I was uh, initially more skeptical about the idea. Uh, it seems to me that you can mount a case that uh, there's a strong argument to be made for keeping Wang Qishan on, possibly making him premier. You can also make a strong case on the other side that this would defy expectations within the party of a retirement turnover at the next Congress, and that whatever problems there are in policy making, they don't justify, for example, removing Li Keqiang as premier. So I can see arguments on both sides, and I think the important thing to remember at this point of the political cycle is that it seems to me extremely unlikely that the party leadership itself has reached any conclusive decision on this. So if I'm hearing that somebody's saying that she has decided this, this and this, and this about Wang Qishan, I'm just very skeptical because it seems to me that many of the personal decisions before the Congress come together as a set of solutions. And that set of solutions is really only hammered out I wouldn't say days before the Congress, but certainly weeks or a few months before the Congress. So I think at this point, it's important for us to have an open mind because these things haven't been hashed out yet. But as things stand, I think it's worth thinking about that seriously and taking into account the arguments for Wang Jishan staying on, but also looking at the pressures that may make it much more likely that he, he retires as well. Well, Chris, there's also this persistent rumor um, that, of course, you, you must have also been on your mind quite a bit uh, about Xi Jinping de de declining to name an heir apparent at the coming party congress and deciding that he's not going to follow recent precedent and hand off the presidency after two five-year terms. So same question. So what do you think and, and what signs would you look for short of Xi actually coming out and stating his intention? That, that Yes, I did write a story about this. Chris, and. Did, and, and uh, you know, coming to writing that story is sort of an, uh, exploring uh, the sources and talking to people and, and trying to present readers with what you think is the most plausible argument for what, what might happen, all the while knowing that nothing has been decided yet. So in that case, I think the reason why I decided to pull the trigger on the story is that I just wasn't seeing the signs of of movement of, of officials, uh, particularly at the provincial level, that suggested that uh, there are preparations afoot for, for certain people to be moved in positions that would then lead to them going to the Politburo and then eventually the Standing Committee as, as likely as apparent to Xi Jinping. And I think several months on that story, we still don't see those signs. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Xi Jinping is, and Chinese politics is full of surprises, but what I would be looking for in the following months is any signs that that uh, movement of personnel is either happening or not happening. Uh, not having a clear successor, at least fairly uh, quickly after the 19th Party Congress creates procedural difficulties for when an heir apparent will emerge and how an heir apparent will emerge and then be put into the, the top tier of power, the Politburo Standing Committee. So who are some of the provincial party secretaries whose movements or lack of movements we should be sort of keeping an eye on? <laughs> now, this is the part of the conversation where I make the, the terrible confession that I have a, a terrible, terrible memory. Wow. Um, 
Well, you can uh, name some provinces. We don't need people. <laughs> <laughs> or, or we can so, just move on to Jerry's. So, uh, you know, I don't want to dwell on that too much, so partly because I always make mistakes and have to Google stuff and then check things again and again. But, you know... Uh, yes. Okay, nicely done, Chris. But having said all that, there are, you know, I, I think the argument I would put is that the people who seem to be in place as... You know, perched in positions that would make them the most likely uh, next generation of leaders. I'm thinking of uh, Sun Zhongshai in Chongqing, for example, or Hu Chunhua in Guangdong. Uh, they've remained in place, and uh, you know, I'm not privy to their conversations with Xi Jinping or anybody else, but it seems to be a, a working relationship there, but nothing that says that she is wrapping his... His, his brawny arms around them and saying, you're my guys. <laughs> at, at the same time, the leaders who seem to have uh, some uh, affiliation with Xi Jinping going back to his days, in, uh, particularly in Zhejiang, uh, they seem a bit too young and inexperienced so that they're plausible people to step into the... Uh, into the breach as successors at the next party congress. That's, that's what um, they said five years ago about Hu, and he, then he was sort of still the, the, the darling of people who held out hopes for political liberalization. How's his star these days? Uh, I, I wish I had a sensible answer to that question. As I said, I, I, I would have guessed if he was really being uh, nurtured as, as the next leader, we would have seen perhaps a movement from Guangdong at some point or uh, some indication uh, in terms of personal appointments that he was being considered you know, as, as a front runner for uh, the, uh, the next top spot in the leadership. Uh, we haven't seen that. Now, some people say that's because he's, he belongs to this youth league faction. Uh, having said that, I'm, not, I'm a little bit skeptical about factions uh, Xi Jinping doesn't seem to place a great deal of stock in people who have risen through the Youth League, and, and that may count against him as well. Uh, all that said, it does seem that he's, he seems to be a reasonably compliment, you know, um, reasonably skilled politician, and it may be that he, he goes into the standing committee at the 19th Congress, but even then I wouldn't be entirely convinced that he's the guy who's going to replace Xi Jinping. So, Chris, next month, the two meetings of the National People's Congress and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference take place here in Beijing. Are you just groaning in anticipation of a really boring set piece, or do you have any expectation that something interesting might come out of it? Uh, the first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you flagged this question to me, and I thought, oh, I better check out on what to get ready for at the National People's Congress. So I was asking friends and... Uh, when I ask people what to get excited about at the National People's Congress, I tend to get uh, glazed stares or derisive laughter. <laughs> um, I think we're marking time at this point of the political cycle. Uh, we may, may see some other personnel changes before and after the National People's Congress. Uh, but my experience of the National People's Congress is that, uh, as we've seen the party centralise power... It's, it's become even more of a sort of a, a promotional vehicle than a deliberative body than yeah. it was before. Now, my experience, say, 10 or even 15 years ago, was that some People's Congress delegates would have bright ideas and would be relatively candid about uh, discussing them. You know, this would be sort of educational reform, for example, or problems in the health system. I, I find when I go each year now that the officials and... And, and delegates to the Congress are, are so afraid of speaking out of line that it's, it's much more difficult to, to find interesting stories there. But it's always amusing to see what the, uh, the, the state media photographers decide to put up on them. <laughs> that's right. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's right. very amusing. Yes. But, you know, there is that one possibility that something will come out of this whole Xiao Jianhua affair, right? Uh, I mean, his alleged abduction from Hong Kong is said to 
there are some people who suggest that it, it was time to happen before the NPC, that he was to be sort of kept under wraps, and that he may be involved in some sort of a, um, that he may be assigned, as Min Xinpei has argued, of an incipient power struggle going on at the top. Other people like Tsai Xin put out a piece over the weekend saying that, that Xiao Jianhua, uh, his tomorrow group, had such a sort of stranglehold on some of the important financial media that that was the real reason he was taken down as sort of part of this anti-corruption drive. What do you, do you have a, I mean, you wrote a piece with Paul Moser about, about the abduction and. Uh, th- that was my colleague, Mike Forsyth. Oh, it was I'll, Mike. I'm sorry. I'll take credit. That's right. I'm sorry. 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 Yeah. Right. I get the two of you guys mixed up, you know, because you look so similar. Uh, so, so just to back up, this is the, uh, uh, the, the Chinese-born gazillionaire who was yeah, gazillionaire, uh, right. who was escorted out of the Four Seasons Hotel in central Hong Kong and that's good. That's a good uh, word. Spirited across the uh, border into Esc- China spirited. to help the authorities with the. See, I can just write this stuff. You like can this. write this stuff. Yeah, just, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, all all we have at this stage is theories and conjectures about uh, why the authorities have taken this step. Uh, I think what we have to remember on this point is that we had the abduction of the uh, the five Hong Kong booksellers uh, uh, over a year ago now, wasn't it? Right. Uh, and that created a, a big uproar in Hong Kong. Uh, this time, the reaction in Hong Kong has been uh, milder. But I think the decision makers in China who decided to take in Xia Jianhua would realize that there's a political cost to pay when you take... Um, extrajudicial action like this to take somebody in. And if they're willing to take that step, there must be some sort of compelling reason that goes beyond the usual run of financial infractions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's just my conjecture. Now, exactly what that is, then we step really into the realm of theory. And one of those theories is that Xiao Jianhua may have information about people that uh, party leaders would rather not... uh, sit with him in Hong Kong. I, I think that That's sounds quite plausible. plausible. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I think one other th- important thing to remember thinking about this is that, um, uh, I was thinking about this today, actually. You know, we're coming up to the 19th Party Congress, and part of that is going to be selecting the next cohort of officials. We also know that there's going to be a great deal of turnover in the financial bureaucracy. And I think Xi Jinping has signaled that... Uh, he doesn't want to promote officials who are tainted by corruption or disloyalty. And it may be plausible that an investigation has indicated that Xia Jinhua has information that may be helpful in identifying people, for example, who may have been leaking information or doing underhand business deals. And that kind of information would also be helpful, uh, not just at looking at misdeeds that already happened already, but also looking forward to try to winnow out who do we want to select in the next cohort of uh, financial bureaucrats in particular. That's just a theory on my part, but I think what we're doing is looking for uh, plausible explanations that go beyond simply dealing with this as a sort of a a financial infractions case. Right, right, right. Chris, you, you have a, if I may change the direction of the questioning Please a little, do. you have a great Twitter account uh, at <laughs> Chu Bai Liang. Um, you link to a lot of interesting stories in the Chinese press that, you know, one doesn't see in the international media. And your t- tweets are sometimes very funny. I think, you know, you've got one of the t- few Twitter accounts that actually makes me crack up into very loud laughter quite regularly. Um, but are you going to ask him, are you the man responsible for the relevant organs? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> no, I'm no, not. no, 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 I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you, you, are you, you actually flatly denying it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but uh, how has Twitter changed the way you work um, and the way you, you get or, or keep up with the news, if at all? <laughs> uh, I, I do sometimes take to Twitter. I, I sometimes have the embarrassing experience now of meeting people and uh, they say, oh, Chris Buckley, I see you on Twitter. And then I have to say, well, I, I have this part-time job working for the New York Times as well. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I like sort of, uh, I, I read the news pretty regularly anyway, and if I see something that I find interesting or amusing, then I sometimes put it on Twitter, uh, partly to sh- 
share what interests me. Uh, partly as a reminder to myself so I can go back and look at my Twitter feed and remember what was interesting. And over time, I found that people like uh, pictures of pandas and livestock as well. So that, <laughs> that goes into the mix as well. Um, one of my general rules is I, I, I sometimes enjoy making jokes on Twitter, but I try not to mock people or to be too sarcastic about things. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> I'm going to go back and be boring and ask you some more about the 19th Party Congress. Because I'm, this is, I think, we, we have this rare opportunity to speak to you. Uh, I want to understand what we ought to be looking for as, as China watchers. Just, what bellwethers, you know, how are we going to, what signals might we look to to ascertain the, the direction of, of the winds um, as the, the, the party congress approaches? I mean, you've already been very good about, about looking at, for example, you know, these uh, provincial party secretaries mm. and or governors and, and movement from there toward the center, uh, preparations for that kind of thing, you know relocation companies and stuff. <laughs> well, but what, what, what other bellwethers? I mean, without giving away any of your trade secrets. Oh, there's no trade secrets, I promise you. Okay, okay. Uh, it, it's very difficult to be specific, but what I would say is the way that I think of the Party Congress is, you know, as a newspaper reporter, we're trying to explain what's happening to a broader readership that uh, can find much more amusing politics in Washington at the moment. <laughs> Unfortunately, so, <laughs> So explaining why one fairly drab group of male politicians being replaced by another fairly drab group of what will mostly, no doubt, be male politicians, why that matters can be a challenge for us. And as I think of it, the, the big question at stake here is, you know, as you were saying before, over the past five years, we've seen Xi Jinping very deftly uh, concentrate and amass power. And the question coming up at the Party Congress is, is he going to be able to engineer uh, policy decisions, personnel appointments and rule changes, so that that concentration of power is consolidated and possibly continues into his, his next five years? Or are we going to see that the uh, coalescence of forces within the party uh, put some sort of break on that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that the kinds of statements that appear in, in the, um, the report to the party congress, any changes to the party constitution, and certainly any personal changes, whether that marks some sort of uh, apex or limit on the extent to which Xi Jinping is able to uh, achieve his will as as leader right. and I don't think we're going to get answers to those questions until the party congress itself it's going to be a drawn-out process but what we'll be looking for in the in the run-up to that any is any signals about where the balance of power lies and whether we're going to be seeing uh, personnel changes or indications about changes to the party constitution and other documents that, that give us clues about where the run of political forces is. Uh, I think we've already seen one of those important clues already. What was that? Uh, which is the elevation of Xi Jinping to core leader. Ah, in the uh, sixth plenum, which was concluded last year. The sixth, the sixth plenum, plenum right. that's right. Which is, um, what was the significance of his elevation to core? I and mean, what does that mean? And was it a surprise to anybody? Is it just a, another title, another star on his collar? Or is this something truly meaningful, as you're suggesting? Uh, did anybody see it coming? I think we all like to pretend that we had uh, foresight. I think there were signs of it beforehand, but I, I personally, I should have seen it coming. Now I look back, but I didn't. You know, there were some officials coming up beforehand and, and lauding Xi Jinping as a core leader, and that was one clue we had, had beforehand. Uh, what does it mean to say that Xi Jinping is a core leader? Well, it, it's a very vague title to carry, isn't it? Right. It's like celestial excellency. I mean, what does it mean? I'm not quite sure, but uh, w there are a couple of fundamental points about being a core leader that I think uh, are important to remember. Uh, first of all, it's, it's a position or title that doesn't have a clear use-by date. In other words, it doesn't say core leader for the next five years or the next 10 years. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mark of honor and, and prestige that says this is the leader who carries uh, a particular authority and his voice 
his ideological pronouncements, his interpretation of, of party orthodoxy will sort of stand longer, right? Will stand longer and matters even more than it did if he were mere party general secretary. Uh, that's one thing we know. Uh, the other thing we know is that his predecessor, Hu Jintao, was not, was not anointed uh, a core leader. Uh, prior to that, Jiang Zemin was a core leader. Yes. And Jiang Zemin was a leader who was party general secretary for some time and then managed to hang on for, what, one and a half years as CMC chief. Central Military Commission chairman. And even after that, seemed to exercise a great deal of informal influence as well. So I, I should stress here, I'm not making any predictions about what happens after 2022. I can't make predictions about the next six months. But what I think it does suggest to us is that what is it, whatever status Xi Jinping carries into the future, for now he's being seen as a leader whose authority and prestige is, is considered first among equals and even higher than first among equals. And that carries, that must carry some weight when it comes to making decisions about who's, no, personnel decisions for the next Congress. So there's also the sense that even if he loses all his other titles, he'll still be a core leader. He will still be a person of influence. A cloistered emperor. Something like that. Uh, uh, yeah, there are no rules about core leader, but does you know, it's a kind of halo that he'll carry around uh, um, for the foreseeable future, at least. Uh, one other thing about when he was anointed core leader, that was in a party decision that also stressed uh, uh, the importance of uh, what the party calls democratic centralism and a process of consultative decision-making so that all leaders have a say. So the party did reiterate, uh, did stress that point again as well. Uh, and I think it's important to remember that. We're not talking about a personalist dictatorship here or anything like Vladimir Putin has been able to achieve. But I think if you look at almost all of the speeches from officials responding to the decision from that plenum, all of them stress the importance of Xi's status as core leader. I really haven't seen any, any speeches by officials saying the most important thing from the sixth plenum was democratic centralism. I think on the contrary, I, 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 I did a word search early on and it was overwhelmingly about the importance of being a core leader. It's all about the core. It's the core. All right. Well, should we end with a question that was emailed to us by uh, Mads Verstechra Nielsen? I don't know if I've got the Mads, are you in the audience? Yeah. Okay, oh, a Danish go. student of political science studying here in Beijing. Uh, and he's considering moving into the field of journalism after he graduates because Danish coverage of China and Chinese politics is, in Mads's word, inadequate. So the question is, since China has changed so much from when you guys got here the first time, what is your advice for aspiring coverers of China uh, from where you stand and see China today? Is this for Chris or is this for all of us? It's meant for all of us, okay. Well, Chris, why don't you, you, you take the... Kaiser, give me a few moments to compose my thoughts, please. Okay, and I'll, I'll babble sense. <laughs> um, I think that, that if there's anything that having been here for a long time confers on, on people, maybe like, like me, like, like Jeremy, and there are other people in the audience here, uh, I see tonight, who have who've been reporting from China for a very long time, it's perspective. It's, it's the perspective of time. It's, uh, we, uh, there are people who've, who came to China in uh, the period after the Olympics and took it very much for granted that it was all, already a, you know, a quite developed country. You know, when I came here in the early 1980s for the first time, uh, there were still a lot of donkey carts, no privately owned automobiles, uh, the, it, no buildings over maybe seven or eight stories in the entirety of the city. It was uh, a, an entirely different city. I mean, the, the, the only way to sort of know, to, to have experienced that is to have experienced it and, and to, to sort of know how far things have come in that time. And it's something that... Uh, as a newer reporter, you just have to keep drilling into your head. You just have to keep remembering that only 30 years ago, this was a radically different place. And I think that it, it actually made me uh, have the effect of softening you uh, and cutting the leadership a little more slack or giving them a little more credit for what they've been able to accomplish. I'll give you another 20 seconds. I've got a really quick answer. The first rule is don't believe anything anyone ever tells you ever. 
um, start from a suspicion of disbelief. Um, whether they're you know, saying good things or bad things about the country or the government, don't believe anybody until you've checked it. Um, and the second thing I would say is you've got to get out of Beijing a lot. Uh, you know, and sh people who live in Shanghai, it's the same thing because they're, they're great, but they're bubbles. No, I would uh, stress the same point that it's very important to get out of Beijing and expose yourself just to the, the, the tremendous variety of this place and the tremendous variety of experiences and voices. The other thing that I find is really important for staying in China and being here long term is, is the friendships that you form here. And I know people can have their bad experiences of China and we don't like the smog. Uh, I missed the smog. You missed yeah. the smog. I was so happy to come back and be like, oh, it's my Beijing. You still smell the same. We put some on for you tonight. Yes, but for me on the longer term, like th those friendships that you develop and uh, the, the, peop the privilege of, of being able to get to know people who have gone through the extraordinary changes that this country is experiencing is... You know, I remind myself all the time it's a real privilege to be here. Day to day it can feel uh, a struggle, uh, can be quite crappy sometimes as well. But longer term, I, th I just find it's a real privilege to do my job, but also to be here, especially at a time when there's so much at stake and there's front so row much changing. Seat to the most amazing transformation, right? I mean, it's just a, a front row seat. Exactly, right? and you can have a bad day and you think, what am I doing here? But then you meet somebody, uh, doing extraordinary things or accomplishing things against all the odds and you think that's the privilege. Chris Buckley, what a wonderful way to, 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 to wrap this up. Uh, let's, uh, let's give him a warm round of applause. Very wise words. Uh, I'm going to pay some bills and then we're going to uh, come back with, with questions from the audience for Chris. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChina.com and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChina news. If you like the Cynic Podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps, and actually it helps people to discover the podcast, and it means a lot to us personally. So thank you uh, for all of those who have done so already. Now, uh, on to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us? Uh, two things. The first thing is uh, quite relevant to what we've been talking about today. It's an interactive infographic produced by the Mercator Institute for China Studies uh, about the party's leading small groups. Uh, and you can... You've been spending too much time on this, I can see. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> small, small group obsession. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I, you know he I'm was obsessed. memorizing these small group flashcards um, on the way over here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, a very useful... Well, I, I mean, I don't know if it's useful. I, I feel as though I'm doing something intelligent when I'm playing around with the different small groups. But um, uh, the second thing I'd like to re recommend is kind of uh, slightly self-interested. It's a, a project I've been supporting for several years by making a website at greatwallfresh.com. Uh, and it's uh, some buddies of mine who have a farmhouse uh, at the village of Chenjapu, where most people are surnamed Chen, and they run a very nice little restaurant. They're very good cooks of simple country food and there's some very nice sections of wild unrestored great wall there that you can walk on and you can stay the night at their house very basic accommodation and you should go soon if that sounds interesting to you because there's an evil real estate group that's building apartments and they're snaking their way up the valley Is it like the Shaolin Temple it, it was the first signs went up was the Shaolin Temple Holding Company uh, and now it's Which a, the subtext is our thugs can kick your thugs' ass. <laughs> <laughs> now it's a different company from Henan that is also somehow involved uh, with the Hernan, with the Shaolin Temple, uh, and they're basically trying to kick all the peasant farmers off their land and build really ugly apartment buildings. But they haven't got up to the nice part of the valley yet, so you should go soon. Greatwallfresh.com. <laughs> Great. And this is like the third time you've recommended this. Well, you know, you've got to keep advertising okay. some things. Right, you know. I'm a businessman, you know. <laughs> Chris, Chris Buckley, what do we have? Uh, what do we have? We have a, a, a general thing I would like to recommend, which is 
a reminder that uh, despite all the ideological tightening over the past few years, uh, there's Chinese writers and historians and scholars who are doing great work. And I think it's really important if you're interested in China to not just read what's in Western languages, but to appreciate that there's, there's people here doing really interesting work. And one of my favorite books on um, China's current uh, generation of leaders is a book by an historian called Miadu, who's uh, an oral historian of the Cultural Revolution period. And uh, this is his uh, book, uh, published uh, under some difficulty, I think, called Xinlu, which is really an, an oral history about the Cultural Revolution generation. And I should stress that the names of the party leaders don't appear in it. That's not the point of the book. But as, uh, as an exploration of what that, this generation of, of Chinese people and leaders went through and the marks that it left on their values and worldview and the extraordinary experiences they went through, I, I find nothing better than this. So I'm, I'm actually trying to read through it again. And uh, I think if you go out there and, and um, go to the bookstores, there, there's still good work being done, and uh, I think we should support it. Uh, my favourite bookstore in Beijing, I should say, is the All Sages bookstore out near uh, Wood Alcohol. They are. Uh, oh, Wansheng-shu. It's great. Interesting. I'm going to do a non-China-related recommendation. Um, actually, there's a guy out here in the audience, Anthony Tao, who once recommended to me a book called Americana, uh, by Chimamanda Ngozi Abiche. And I read that and loved it. And I'm, I'm, I read another novel of hers just recently uh, called Half of the Yellow Sun, which is terrific. It takes place in the 1960s, the early 70s, during the, uh, the Biafran Civil War, the, the Civil War for Biafran independence in Nigeria. Uh, terrific writer. I'm just just humane and funny and and wonderful. And of course, it, it, you learn an awful lot about, uh, especially the Igbo parts of Nigeria. So highly recommended. Uh, have you read anything by her? She's very good. No. Uh, she's, you should definitely check her out. Jeremy, what about you? Have you have you read her? Uh, no, I, I have Americanus in the pile of. I haven't gone there yet. Next to the bed. Okay. Well, let's take this out and then take some questions for for Chris. So, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks to Anla Cheng and to Soraya Durabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. And uh, thanks to all of you for coming and, and, and listening. Give it up for yourselves. All right. And take care. You're going to see rock and roll. Rock and roll.